You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where we share our knowledge and sometimes painful experiences of what it's like to be a rules-based investor and where we, at the end, do some Q&A based on your questions as we really want this to be a listener-driven podcast. Um, let me st start by, as usual, say good morning to you guys, Jerry. Good afternoon to you. Moritz, how are you? Good morning, both. Hey, doing well. How are you? Doing just fine. Um is uh, in Florida this week. So uh, if there are some strange noises from the hotel I'm in right now, then you know the reason why. Um, but anyways, if this is your first time you're tuning in, we just want to say welcome. We love that you're spending some of your time with us and we'll certainly do our best to make it worthwhile. Just a quick recap again. I mean, I haven't had the chance to follow things that closely this week but it seemed pretty busy and of course got really busy on friday with some uh, quite strong u.s jobs numbers lots of jobs created uh, overall low unemployment of course and um, and rising hourly earnings so i guess it's no big surprise that stocks are still enjoying um you know really strong um a really strong period right now and uh, we're again very very close to exceeding those uh, november 30th uh, all-time highs in the U.S. market. Of course, you know, the, the European markets didn't maybe fully recover from the early part of the week. And of course, Australia and those markets maybe didn't have time to react to, to those news. Um, so they may catch up uh, in the early part of this coming week. And um, the other thing I noticed was uh, um, that uh, in Japan, apparently the largest uh, public pension fund is... Uh, is uh, you know, picking a bit of a fight with short sellers, they're they're uh, disallowing uh, lending shares to to for short selling. Um, so I guess that's uh, interesting, and and also at the same time in Japan there was uh, another hundred and twenty billion dollar stimulus package being launched. So I guess there is no nothing they won't stop to uh, or won't do to uh, to get back to those uh, all time highs we saw in Japan some thirty years ago and. And for those of you who may not have been around back then, equity markets can actually go down for quite a long time, uh, even though we haven't seen it in in other parts of the world for, for quite a while. And then, of course, uh, looking into next week, we, we have the first meeting in Europe uh, uh, of the ECP with Christine Lagarde as, uh, as the new head. And, of course, Thursday, British election. So uh, could be an interesting finish to the... Uh, to the year before the uh, holiday sets in, actually also to this decade, uh, we have to remember. And then the only other thing I noticed this week was, of course, that we know that I think that uh, it took uh, probably about uh, two years or so for the Fed's balance sheet to drop about 18 or 19% from its high uh, while it was doing the QT. And of course now it's doing something that they won't admit is QE, so it's not QE, but I noticed that they already sort of taken back half of that, so now we're only 9% below the balance sheet high of the fall 2017, so lots of liquidity being pumped into the system again, so I guess maybe that also plays a little bit of a role in the uh, 
ever expanding equity prices. So, Moritz, I uh, we missed you last week, of course. Um, so I'm excited to hear how the last couple of weeks have been for you. Yeah, well, thank you. I think I owe you an update because I missed last week, as you said. Um, maybe a quick summary on November. November was good for me. Um, I think up about 5%, a bit more than 5% even. And um, on the back of that, I got a bit longer again in the bonds, longer in the equities. And um, and that wasn't the right thing to do, it seems, for the first week of December. So um, I didn't have a good start into December. And it wasn't just, you know, being being the bonds. It was uh, the long silver position, which I have, long gold, all of that, struggling a bit. Um, but, you know... Um, Year to date, it's seven uh, or eight percent up. So uh, the hope is that it's going to be a positive year, and if that's the case, I'm all happy about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, of course, we are somewhat off the highs of uh, earlier this year, um, but still looking like a strong year as, as well as on on our side. I mean, this week was of course, very much dominated by the higher higher equity prices. So that's where a lot of the performance uh, came from. Um, we had a, a, a weaker US dollar, uh, which detracted a little bit from performance. And also there were a few of the commodities that weren't that easy uh, for us uh, either. And I'm just having a quick look. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the some of the grains didn't do uh, too well uh, and live cattle didn't do too well for us and then on the upside i mean the winner this week really was uh, found to it was found in the currency sector but it's the only currency that made money which was the mexican peso the rest of the currency sector as mentioned the weaker dollar didn't help um uh, and uh, yeah a little bit of profit uh, here and there but um yeah so a reasonable start to uh, you know slightly down for the month but still healthy for the year and we'll see how the last three weeks um plays out um and uh, yeah what about you jerry on your side how's everything looking up yeah just uh painful in, in the metals that's the biggest problem i see for us was the lead and nickel and uh, the precious metals as well and get, i was just getting paranoid about all the counting up all the recent trades i've done they're all sort of turned into losses pretty quickly so I guess I was happy to see some rally in bean oil and uh, cocoa on Friday. So I know I shouldn't pay attention to those small little things, but uh, kind of bothers me a little bit. We're all humans after all, right? Still human, yes. Still human, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I mean, as 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 our audience can hear, can can hear, it wasn't a you know not one of those most exciting weeks. Not a lot really to report on that front. Um, so maybe it was much more exciting to be involved in the FinTwit world this week. Maybe some juicy articles or provocative quotes we can dive into and um, give our thoughts uh, on that, uh, Jerry. So I'm gonna turn it over to you. Yeah, there was a lot here that I enjoyed. Uh not sure i didn't set an all-time record for the best tweet like i have uh, recently but uh some of the stuff i kind of enjoyed um this is one from a trend follower on twitter the market will move as life will move perfectly unpredictable and with the best laid plans going horribly awry we can't control the market just as we can't control the future so the winners are simply those best positioned to benefit from a future not yet seen 
I keep uh, reminding myself, you know, about something like this, which is basically you can't predict. No one knows where the market's going. And I hope that's true. I wonder if it's true. I've said it's true. I think my trading and my strategy, the breakouts and the moving averages and the trends, they uh, indicate that I believe that that's true. So if that's true, what's better than what we do? What can possibly be better if you can't predict? I mean, I know there's some things out there. Uh, Rentech is our go-to and maybe some other things. But in the long run, really, you know, is it reasonable to even think that um, paying attention to the prices only and following a, an approach, system systematic approach, taking small losses, is that, uh, should we expect anything better than that? Or shouldn't we just sort of expect that what we do is about as good as it's going to get? Well, it's right down our alley. I've said it many times, uh, I cannot predict anything. So I'm a complete failure at that. And because I know that, um, none of us can. Uh, I like the way my system, you know, deals with those markets, with those volatile markets that, you know, throw curveballs at us, at us every once in a while. And um, like Jerry was alluding to, I haven't found a better way of positioning my portfolio uh, for the long term than, than that trend following trading style. So it's, it's exactly what we do. I was reminded about what you just said there, and I did see the tweet as well um, uh, during the week. And um, I was reminded about it a little bit on the way over to the US yesterday, uh, listening to uh, an, an audio book, uh, which was on a completely different topic. It was more about, you know, technology, social media, et cetera, et cetera. But 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 it it reminded me about how how much have changed in the last ten to fifteen years, um, and uh, you know. 10, 15 years ago, we we didn't have Uber, uh, we didn't have the iPhone, um, you know, there are just things that we take for granted today, and it's just part of our everyday life, but we forget that this didn't exist 10, 15 years ago, and so I think it goes to show and confirms what you just said, and that is, it is impossible to predict, um, you know, what's going to be the big, what's going to be the big trends um, 10 or 15 years ago, or 10 or 15 years from now. Uh, who knows? Um, it's certainly going to be different to uh, to what it is today. So um, I think having uh, a very agnostic uh, approach to the markets, um, markets that are so complex in terms of how they operate, but deep down are still based on on humans and human decisions, uh, even though some of them are programmed into computers and we allow the computers to... Um, to uh, help us with the implementation of the strategies, but deep down, things that are behavioral based, um, which of course a lot of these the social media is as well. I mean, but there are certain things that will never change, um, and, and and so as, as as we've talked about having having strategies that are behavioral based, I just think is important. Um, whether it's you know trend following or not, it doesn't really matter. But the fact that they are rooted in behavioral. Uh, and human behavior is is important, and and right now I guess we're probably one of the few um, that can claim that. So yeah. Another thing to say is that I think it's very important that um, paying attention to the trends and following a systematic approach based on trends does not really rely so much on history. Yeah, it's the history of what happened in that particular system. When you follow these rules, did it have a tendency to work? And basically, did you take small losses? And were you in gear and making money on the big trends, which is not that difficult to create a, an approach that you can make sure that does that. But I think it's, we're not really relying so much on history. Uh, history is a snapshot of what has happened, and the future is going to be different. Um, 
There was another quote, uh, this will be the first decade in modern economic history since 1850 that the U.S. won't experience a single recession. So uh, relying upon that sort of data, like, well, we always have a recession every 10 years, every decade has recession, you know, that's just not what we do. That is uh, not a good way to analyze. History is not a good guide, as I've said before, except, you know, a sample size of a systematic approach that has a large sample size. That's a good guide. But what's happened in the past, valuations, uh, none of that stuff, you know, no one thinks that stuff can be proven to work historically. Um, paying attention to fundamentals and things like that. It's, the world's gonna be different, it's gonna change, and yet, an approach like ours continues to be something worth using. Yeah, but of course, as we also, um, um, you know, often mention is that, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult approach to hold, and that's probably also why, um, I mean, we don't really want more people to do trend following, really, deep down, that's probably not a good thing for us. Um, but of course, we we preach that people should embrace it. So um, uh, hopefully, it will happen. But um, you know, most people when they hear that, um, and and they this is what I this is what I don't understand as as well. And that is, we we talk about how things will always be different and how it's you know it's a good idea. We think to have a strategy that uh, you know is not predicated on 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 stable and and uh, convergent markets and and so on and so forth. But on top of that, we have all this evidence, right? We have all the evidence of track records that are real. And so um, what I still don't really understand is how so many people chooses to ignore the evidence. Maybe it's just because it is too hard to uh, to hold on to, but, but ignoring the evidence, I think, is a really stupid thing to do. Case in point, um, just uh, a week or two ago, I showed a very long-term CTA track record trading at high volatility to um, to colleagues of mine. And um, that's like, you know, close to 30 years of pure trend-following trading. And as you know, the chart goes from the bottom left corner to the upper right, but with lots of volatility. Now, if you step back from that, like, you know, if you looked at, so there's a beamer, you know, beaming the thing against a wall. And if you look at the chart from, you know, 20 feet distance, then you go, definitely want to have it. That's, that's the one thing, right? That's the only thing you want to have in your portfolio. Nothing's better. And then you have a little bit of a, of a, of a focus and you say, well, you know, there have been those drawdowns and there have been like 30% and there's another one at 35% and that's been going on for three years and all that type of stuff, right? And then the thing completely changes. And I think this is, I've said this before, I guess, is, is the difficulty is in holding on and not giving up the end result, I'm pretty sure is beautiful. Going from point A to point B over that long period of time is great. But in between, there are so many bumps that are so easy or so likely to throw you out of the curve and, and, and have you leave you know, the system and step away from it. That is where the risk is. And to me, this is also where the alpha is. If you can be the guy holding on uh, to the system during those stressful points of time. You know, on, so, so to add to that, uh, Moritz, I mean, th this is a long-term journey. I mean, investing for many people should be at least a 20, 30 or 40 year journey. So, I mean, so who cares about what the performance is going to be next month or even what the returns are next year? I mean, who, who cares if you're losing at half time? What matters is what's the end result, right? I know. But also statistically, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe this is a, a question uh, from my side to, to the two of you. Um, 
statistically, what is the average holding period of your clients and your funds? So we you know when when I looked at the cross section of investors I had in the past, it's um, you know they say yeah we're going to be here for the long term, whatever long term means, five years and more, right? Um, but then when you take like the median of how long do they actually stay invested, um, it's kind of like three to four years, and then they move on. And this could be, you know, this is a time frame that could be very detrimental to trend following because three to four years, the way we trade, the way I trade, um, doesn't necessarily allow the system to really play out its strength. It may come in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth year, whatever, maybe in the ninth or tenth, right? Um, but three to four years could be a relatively flattish period. It could be up by happenstance, it could be down by happenstance, we're unlucky, but it's, I would say, not enough time for that long-term trend-following trading approach that we have. And even though we make that very clear to investors at the outset, it seems that the half of them are not willing to hold on for longer than three to four years. And then they move on because maybe the grass is greener somewhere else. Maybe there is a CTA with a story that does better marketing that you know trades alternative markets or does this and that and the other thing. And they think it's this should be a good thing now to move over and swap things from left to right. Um, I guess a lot of a lot of horsepower in your portfolio is uh, goes by the wayside if you have that behavior. We would love to hear your thoughts, Jerry. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I was just thinking about that. Thinking the average is probably something that's not uh, a, a large number, but then I think there are probably a, a handful. You know, that's sort of like the trading. Like ten percent of the trades make all of our. We make all of the money on ten percent of our trades, probably. You know, 10% of my clients are going to be there for as long as I'll trade their money, basically. You know, and so that's probably how it, how it's worked for me is I've had a lot of, uh, a few long-term clients who understand the process. And I think if you truly understand risk in the markets and uh, the amount of diversification we offer and the benefits of the systematic approach, then... Um, your holding period is forever. You know, it's it's the only thing you would do. It doesn't really matter what the recent performance has been. I'm not going to put my money out there that uh, certainly in a situation where I might make 8% and with a 50-plus drawdown, you know, just sitting there. If that's what it takes, then I'll, I'll pass. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I've never done the math in terms of specifically saying what's the average uh, holding, but I, I agree with Jerry that there's going to be some, and we certainly have some, who've been with us for decades, without a doubt, and they have enjoyed uh, some really, really strong returns. And then there are people, um, and um, typically, of course, this happens during kind of a flat to down period where I think people get, um, uh, you know, some people just get bored and they move on to something else. Um, and of course, other things can can have an influence, and and people may have to leave you after a much shorter period than anticipated. The problem, of course, is that a lot of investors spend or analyze uh, decades worth of data to make the investment decision, but then they only look at you know uh, twelve months or eighteen months of data to make the decision to to redeem, and that that's a big problem. Um, but I think this is also something that uh, is is more um, more fundamental in our society today. Is uh, I think one of the things we're losing in general uh, as a race is patience, 
everything has to happen, you know, overnight. Um, you, you you don't see anyone nowadays building businesses without getting massive amount of funding because it has to happen so quickly, right? In the old days, you would build it slowly and it would last really long. Nowadays, you have to raise the capital before you even have a business, so almost. So, so I think patience is incredibly undervalued. Um, and of course, we know in our industry, when we look at our track records, the importance, and, and we can see that from other investors like Warren Buffett, I mean, the importance of of the long term and the compound effect of um, uh, of, of the returns is, is um, incredible. So we can give people all this evidence, but we still can't get them to really, really commit to uh, just invest, keep it as a core part of their portfolio. And not look at it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We're humans and, uh, you know, I think people want the fancy, the newest and the latest gadget and the newest thing. And as you were just saying, maybe people leave because they're getting bored. That is actually, I think, a very bad excuse to leave any trading system. I mean, we've heard the market visitors and all of them say, if, you know, good trading should be really dull. If it feels real boring, then you're probably doing the right thing. If you're getting all too excited by your investments, then probably you're trading with too much heed or there's something else going on but you know it may cloud your judgment so having a you know relatively boring thing that you can step away from and keep objectively in your portfolio that's probably a good thing it shouldn't be the trigger point to have that thrown out of your portfolio yeah i mean the challenge is we can give people all the information in the world um but yes. that doesn't necessarily mean that they make smarter decisions uh, we've seen that on so many fronts, uh, you know, even from when people started putting or when food labels were put on 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 food, so they could see how healthy or unhealthy it it is. Um, but people are not making healthier choices, it would seem. Um, so, um, so I I think we have to, you know, it's 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 a challenge. The other thing that's a challenge I find is that. It's the, just the amount of information, um, meaning that, and, and, and I'm guilty as charged, I mean, we provide a lot and a frequent information to our investors, and frankly, that's probably not the best thing for them to receive, yet that is what they would like, so we do it. Um, but in the old days when you had, you know, an annual letter, okay, so you're up 5% or you're up 25%, that's probably a better level of information for most investors if they're invested, you know, for the next 30, 40 years anyways. Why do you need to get weekly updates or monthly updates? But as I said, I'm guilty in charge. I, I deliver that to, to my clients because, you know, that's what they would like. So we do that. But if we could change, if I could change something and, and say, you know, in terms of communication, I think we should probably slow everything down and we should do everything we can to uh, instill patience uh, on on what we do and and I think this is true about something that you know if I think about how you know Jerry and I think about Don and and so on and so forth I mean we've been around for so many years because we have been patient because we've taken time to make the right decisions we're not jumping from one model to another or one time frame to another just chasing what might have worked the last uh, you know few months or, or, or and so on and so forth and I remember uh, in um, right after the February 18 uh, volatility spike where equity sold off and CTAs, uh, you know, lost a bit of money in, in a couple of weeks. And 
There were a lot of people who were asking, so why don't you go back and do some research to find ways to overcome these drawdowns when things like this happen? But, but the answer is, we wouldn't want to change anything just to overcome a two-week correction if it doesn't help, if, if it's something that is detrimental to the long-term performance of the model. Why would we try and, and, and remove a short-term correction if, if we're going to lose 3% or 4% per year in the next 40 years? It makes no sense. So, Pretty good. Uh, I, although I do think people do that, so... but. Uh that's something that uh, sure. is a problem. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. Of course it happens, yeah. This uh, next one, I read an article from a Matt Faber, um, actually, uh, interview on his podcast. It was pretty good, and especially when it's coming from someone who's not a technical trend-following systematic trader. Same issue, he's focusing on behavioral finance. And this gentleman says, it's so hard not to sell after it's up 100%, or 200%, 300%, 400%, or 500%. But so many of these just compound away. That's one of the founding tenets of behavioral finance. We become risk averse with gains and we tend to sell too early. Uh, Moritz a few minutes ago said uh, stressful times. And so sometimes stressful times are when we're making money. Uh, clients, they're, they're stressful. What are you going to do with that? Why aren't you out yet? That's enough. Uh, and he goes on to say, if daily performance is down, you feel pain. If it's up, you feel joy. But the pain outweighs the joy. If you look at prices all day, you'll become too risk averse. We have health warnings by our Bloomberg terminal that say looking at prices too much will make you too risk averse. So that's two things I don't do. I don't ever look at, well, I do look at prices, but I don't look at performance daily. And then I, oh, I'm, all, I'm pretty guilty of milking these trades way longer than you probably should and getting out of them at the last possible second, you know, um, when it's definitely, definitely in it downtrend or the, the I don't have a tendency to take profits or get too freaky when it's up 400%. I'm sort of thinking, okay, maybe we're going to go 800% here. So uh, I think uh, that's probably better than getting out too quickly. So we've talked about it before, but being afraid when we've got lots of profits is kind of weird. See, it's, 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 you know, it's this, but then it's also the, the difficulty that people have in making a fair admission that they've made a mistake by exiting that long position too early and they're not capable, psychologically not capable, to get back in. There are so many people who have sold Apple, who have sold Amazon, who have sold Netflix at prices far, far below where they currently are. And they've never found, they never came to terms with it. They never found a way back in and they're now sit there and they look back on the stock of Apple and they think like, well, have, if I had only held on to that thing, I would now be a multimillionaire or something like that. It's just so difficult to get back in. And I, you know, also to me, this is, you know, if, if I were doing this on a discretionary basis, as you know, I have sometimes done, um, you know, in all fairness and frankness, for instance, with all that, you know, Bitcoin trading prior to there being futures contracts where, you know, you, you just play the thing and it's going up like crazy and you liquidate some of that stuff. And uh, so the same thing goes on there. It's outside of my trend following portfolio, but, you know, I'm guilty as everybody else. But with my system, the system doesn't have any of those regrets. And it's incredibly valuable to have it programmed in and you need to step back from the desk. And if the thing gets you out of a market, 
um, you know, you take a profit, it has been going high, and it then goes down, you get, you get out, you have to be able to get back in. And this is what the system just does. And I don't, I don't even question the thing anymore. It's, it's just, it's just the rule. Yeah, I mean, it's just just touching on on sort of a summary of of the last two points we talked about. I think the other challenge we have, um, I mean, you talk about uh, this thing about you know being act active and getting out uh, more, but never getting back in again. I mean, here here's one of the other things that I think we're face faced with as as investors, um, and that is um, with everything in life, pretty much, except investing, there is a correlation, a very high correlation with. Uh, activity and effort and outcome meaning you know if we want to get in shape well the more we go to the gym or etc etc you know the better the result will be but with investing there is no correlation in fact it's probably opposite the less we do more likely than not is the better the outcome you know if we just stick with the portfolio for you know very very long time we're going to have a better result than trying to jump in and out uh, all the time and and certainly we know from the you know studies on day trading most day traders lose money every single year and and their accounts are blown up after a few years because they're just being too active so that's just another challenge we have um when dealing with these things uh is that there are so many things that we are programmed to do as as people as humans uh, which makes us really bad investors. You know, uh, another good point that I think we've talked about before is, um, and we'll get into this on another tweet, another uh, Meb interview podcast, talking about risk and uh, this interviewee saying, uh, well, no, why? What the hell is going on with this idea of risk being... Uh, the amount of money that you may lose in a trade, that's crazy. Risk is fluctuation per day. So ignoring that and focusing that risk is actually your percentage of winners and uh, 60% and then multiply that times your average loss. And these losses are, you know, really have to be overcome by profits and focusing on that and not on the daily fluctuation, especially on a uh, a trade that's made 800%, you know, or 400% gives us this incredible power uh, to stick with it and to uh, be cowardly with losses, but bold with profits. And it gets to the heart and the core of what trend following is. Is it daily fluctuations uh, or is it uh, a gambling idea of I'm going to limit my risk and limit how much I lose on each hand and it's a bet, which I fully embrace. You know, so I think that uh, allows us if we can force ourselves into thinking differently about the fluctuations. Now, I'm not, I'm certainly in favor of a monster trade that's made a lot of money and the ATR is 10x of what it was when you put it on to take some off the table. Uh, you get lucky near the top, you get unlucky near the middle, you know, whatever, but that's fine, you know, to so you can sleep at night and so your portfolio is not so crazy. I'm not against that. Uh, it's a huge trade and it's random as to whether it's going to, how much you're going to make in it. But uh, it is kind of interesting to sort of note that um, taking small profits on the way up, smaller than the system would indicate you would take, um, you know, it can kind of fool the numbers. You, know, you can have a sharp ratio on that trade of infinity if you get out near the high. And if I have a trade that the max P&L is 800% profit, but I end up making 400% in it, 
And I look like I'm, you know, I'm an idiot. I mean, I've had this huge monster drawdown and made a lot more than you made with your sharp ratio of infinity. Uh, so I, th I think that uh, these are all ideas that um, are at the root, you know, and make trend following difficult to love. And yet it's kind of one of the reasons I do love it. It is, uh, it is so right to me and so uh, I enjoy being uh, right in the market and being right intellectually. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and of course, this year is going to be one of those years where, or maybe I mean, this is the other thing that influences to to some extent uh, maybe the appetite for not just what we do, but but just anything that diversifies away from equities. Uh, when you've had a decade that we're just coming out of now, where I mean, anything you did in terms of diversification would have detracted from your returns of a pure stock, long only stock portfolio. Uh, it just hasn't paid off uh, as such to be uh, diversified. Um, so, so that's the other challenge we will we'll have on that. But again, in, when you look at the very long run, that doesn't hold up uh, either. I mean, diversification does work uh, and is incredibly important, but it just doesn't work all the time. That's right. Just have to be patient with that as well. You know, I'm sure there will be times again in the future where our diversified approach will do better than a long-only S&P 500 allocation, even though the past couple of years it hasn't been the case. But we will have our place in the sun again. Yeah, well, I think people have forgotten that the actual total return for equities from 2000 to 2010 was minus 12%. Yeah, was, completely you know, muted, exactly. Completely, yeah, no return. Um, what else did you see in, um, in your Twitter feed this week uh, that you liked? Well, over the past couple of weeks, there's been some uh, articles, I guess probably mostly about equities, that talk about uh, no need to do short trades. Uh, factor investing kept simple. Forget the shorts and focus on the longs. So all of us don't agree, and I copied something from Moritz that said, uh, yes, I would have made more money without the shorts in my trend-following system, but from a risk-return standpoint, I want and need the shorts in my portfolio. And I think that's what we've all experienced, that maybe the shorts uh, haven't been that great, but they definitely make money sometime. 2014, short energy, the CTAs made a lot of money. Um, but over the entire period, are shorts great money makers? Not yet, but they may be. You know, once again, are you predicting the future? If you sort of say that, um, well, I've sliced and diced, and so... Shorts are not great. And then go ahead and slice and dice some more. Okay, uh, grains are not great. They're not great on the long or the short side. So now we can really narrow, narrow it down and get really precise and ignore shorts and ignore the grains. And now we really got something. Well, I don't think you really do because you are predicting that that bit of history, uh, what has happened, uh, rather than just describing what has happened, it's something now you can really rely upon. So you're far away from the your entry-exit rules that uh, create this sample size and you promise to follow it going forward for the rest of your life and ignore delineating between the longs and the shorts and the different sectors in the markets. So I think uh, that's a difference between a typical CTA and trend follower and uh, the academic crowds that, once again, are going to focus probably mostly on stocks. And uh, But still, I, I still will say that Regardless of what uh, short stocks have done, not enough sample size, they could become very, very profitable and have big long-term trends that we've never seen before because that's what we experience in these markets and that's what we have and that's what we need, things we've never seen before. 
So can I ask you guys a question? Do you know the difference between liking something and loving something? Uh, no, I'm intrigued. Well, don't tell my wife. She would like she'd like me to know the answer. But <laughs> so, so you like because, but you love despite, right? So in yeah. this case, you love your trend following despite the shorts, right? Despite the drawdowns and despite the volatility in returns. And I think that's 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 it. You know, sure. I mean, we can like a relative value strategy because it's stable and all of that, right? But but when you truly love something, you do. You, you you love it despite it having all these things that are not just you know perfect i love my system <laughs> what else in the goodie bag jerry we've got a few questions but not that many this week um so feel free to bring up i have one maybe in between before jerry goes on there was um and maybe jerry you're going to mention the same thing you've shared it with me this paper by from our friends at Transtrend. Uh, the market is not a shop. Maybe you guys have touched on it last weekend. Uh, maybe I'll no. Go ahead. Um, I have not even read it, but I've, I'm aware of it. So go go ahead. Let's. I yeah. I only found time to read through it um, last night um, before going to bed, and and I was um, I was really blown away because you know you read sometimes you read papers and you you know you skim through them and there are some nuggets in there and lots of things you agree with and some you don't agree with and you kind of like put it aside it's an average paper and you move on to the next one and i would say for the majority of articles this is kind of like the case there's some you know known stuff the well trodden path uh that's you know kind of like repetitive and you know a little bit of news but so this one was like a close to 30 minute read and I put it down and I must say, I, I loved the complete thing. There was just not a piece in there that I didn't like or didn't agree with. And it was, um, it is an interesting topic about the market microstructure and the, the limit order book and price insensitive market participants trading at the settle or around the close. And nobody to my knowledge has ever you know brought that topic up in such a nice way it's a topic which i think you know when people speak about it's easy to make it super complex so that you lose people right away within the first five minutes and they give up because they can't follow through with your line of thinking but uh, trendstrand has done a fantastic job of um of uh, just explaining why those price insensitive market participants are really um, a disadvantage to finding, you know, to having to finding a price equilibrium um, in a fair market. A fair market should not be like a grocery store, like a shop where you just go in and you put a product out of the shelf and you pay the advertised price for it. It should be a place where a buyer and a seller can meet, put bits and offers out in an order book and if if they meet there then you know we have a trade um, it shouldn't be the prices shouldn't be forced there shouldn't be some insensitive price insensitive force behind the order book uh, influencing it and there's lots of gold stuff in there about the task orders traded settlement which by the way i trade and and so reading this paper got me thinking about well am i I need to think about those task orders. Can you and explain a little bit more? Um, just so what task orders are? Yeah. Just, oh, okay. So let's get a little bit more meat on okay, this. Okay. So task is 
TAS trade at settlement and there are certain contracts uh, which have that order type it allows you to trade during the day um, and and if you find somebody to trade with you a task contract at the price of zero then that other party guarantees you the daily settlement price right so you're not going to have any slippage so if your target is if your aim is to be filled at the daily settlement for whatever reason you want that to be the case but if that is your target then for instance in crude oil in you know the majority of the commodity markets you can put a task order into the market on that day way ahead of the settlement the daily settlement right so for instance in crude oil daily settlement is uh, 2 p.m eastern time in wti that is and so you could you could place an order at 10 a.m in the morning and say uh, i'm limit i'm a limit buyer at zero and if you get filled at zero then you will be getting long the wti futures contract on that day as per the exact settlement price of that day you may get filled at minus a tick which means you get the settlement price even better by a tick if you're buying right or you may get filled a tick higher which means you're charged the settlement price plus one tick um, but you know in in there's also task spreads and all that type of stuff it's a fairly liquid market fairly large market growing liquidity in my experience and i'm using it because my trend following trading system using open high low close slash settlement prices is actually fed that settlement price right this is what's the input in my system and as we've said before you know you should trade what you test and test what you trade certain orders that i place are actually designed to trade at exactly that settlement price for whatever that's worth it's just the way that my system operates right there are other order types which don't look for the settlement price but some do so so is the argument that it's good or bad to have these it's, it's bad he says it's bad because you know there's why why actually is there a need the exchange comes up with a settlement why are you why are you i mean if you read the paper you know you it'll become clear why are you f looking to be exactly at that settlement price uh, you know insensitive to all the other prices you should, you should be maybe you know go to the market and just you know negotiate a price that is good for you so anyway i really recommend to read this paper it got me thinking and um as i've said i've liked every piece of it well I'll certainly try and find time to to read it a uh the guys at Trend put out a lot of good stuff. But I'm not so sure that I necessarily think that it's a bad thing uh, for some orders to be done at a settlement price if that's what you're targeting anyway. So uh, the alternative is that you would have traders sitting around waiting for the settlement price to you know get close to and then do all the trading around that time anyways. Um, it doesn't stop anyone from trading, as you said, throughout the day and try and do better or worse. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that that that's right. Like like I've said, I mean, I I need to think about this a bit more. As I've said, I'm using the order type. I'm targeting the settlement. But it has been shown or it can be shown that there's so much money targeting the settlement, especially at the end of a quarter, at the end of the month, like, you know, the big expiration cycles, all of that type of stuff that you see lots of money kind of like really insensitive at that point they just need to get lots of money done at the settlement because that's what they're targeting 
that there's a real dislocation in price in the well, last the, couple of minutes. But isn't that different, Moritz? Isn't that different? Sorry, and again, apologize yeah. for having not read the paper, but isn't that different? So let's just say that you agree upfront that you're going to mm -hmm. get the settlement price. You know, So mm -hmm. at early in the morning, you've already done your trade, you're going to get the settlement price, but you don't know what that settlement price is. But the alternative mm -hmm. is that a lot of people will have an opinion of where they would like the settlement price to be so they're going to try and manipulate towards the end of the trading day when the set I, I and i don't even know how the settlement whether it's you know just a, a, a price based on a certain time of day like the close we know that some manipulation can take place around the close but so i don't even know how the settlement price is, is calculated for all of these contracts but but I, I think it's a problem if you start manipulating the settlement price. But if the settlement price is just kind of, okay, this is what, like you, for example, in, in the DAX, in the Euro, or in the Bund, I think you can get everything you need to get done in terms of volume. You can get that done on the open price. You don't have to manipulate around the open because it'll, it'll, they'll fill all your orders um, at the open price if you put it in ahead of time. So I don't know that it's a bad thing that people can just say, okay, we'll get that price, whatever that price is. And in our case, since we, we're not that concerned per se, whether we're one tick or one, two ticks above or below uh, a, a certain price uh, because we're long term. I think it's much more of a problem if people are trying to manipulate a certain price, whether it be the open, the close, or the settlement, because that has an a, a, an influence on on their portfolios or their remuneration or whatever it might be. So I guess it's it's not about the the one tick or the two ticks. Um, imagine you have a market that you know trades at a hundred um, ten minutes prior to the settlement, and there's really no news, no nothing going on. And then only because now is the end of the quarter and only because in a couple of minutes the settlement period is coming up, there's all of a sudden a lot of volume going into this market uh, by market participants who are, and this is what the paper describes, price insensitive because at that point they no longer look at the price, they just need to get the volume done no matter what the price. So the market right now trades at 100 and then it crashes down to 97 only because all that money is um, looking to get done at settlement. So you are a seller, you're now selling at 97. I, I could be that person, right? Because I used that TAS order. Um, the, next, the next session opens up at 100 again, because, you know, really the fair price of that market is 100. And that settlement that was just, you know, driven by all that insensitive money pushing it down at that one instance, and it spikes back up like a rubber band. Um, this this is more than a tick um this could be you know this this is this is this oh, is real sure. movement no, i'm sorry to interrupt you here but no i completely agree with that but that that i think is 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 well then i probably misunderstood the the issue because i thought if you wanted to sell at settlement price you wouldn't have to go in and dump all your you know your 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 uh, your positions or whatever it wanted to be. I thought you had just agreed, okay, I'm going to get the settlement. Now, if people want, because that comes back to the to the either quote-unquote manipulation, but it comes back to another thing, which I think people are, uh, where we are often accused as CTAs or trend followers to be influencing the markets. We've talked about this many, many times, right? 
I think there's a complete, there's a much bigger problem, and that's all these robo orders that has to happen for the passive funds, where you know, as you say, half an hour before the close of the sale, they have to get their flows done. So, so all of that automatic trading happens, which has nothing to do with trend following. That's just to do the deal with the flow, and so that's a combination of of uh, of many things, but one of them being that so much money is chasing. You know, is now being invested in passive funds, and when they when they see big outflows or inflows, they have to get that volume done, and that is indiscriminate indiscriminate buying or selling or, or whatever you called it. Exactly, price for sure, and that I think is an issue. Yeah, I think that's an issue. No, that's what I mean. So, like, yeah. like my TAS order that I've described, right? So, if, if I'm if I'm buying a TAS at zero, and you're on the other side of that, it forces you. Uh, you know, to trade that settlement because you're exposed, right? You kind of like need to hedge by getting that settlement price for me. So you will be trading at settlement. You will be active. My order, my task order forces the other side, if the other side wants to hedge, to trade at settlement. So I'm forcing that liquidity into the settlement as well through my order. Um, and it is, I mean, like I say, it, I, I want to think about it a bit more. It was only just last night, but there is some um, real interesting thinking in in that paper and um, I recommend reading it, sure. especially because the settlement is used for so many things, right? Remember, the settlement is used to calculate the variation margin that we get credited or debited in our accounts. The settlement is used to value our funds the next day. Uh, so it has an impact. That price has an impact on subscriptions and redemptions and on the NAV of our funds and at what price clients get done when they subscribe to a fund or when they redeem from a fund. So those prices have, they're really meaningful. And um, um, therefore, I mean, like I said, I, uh, I need to mull it over it a bit more uh, and read the paper again. Yeah, no, it sounds like an interesting topic for sure. It's something that um, is worth looking into. Jerry, you were very quiet. Well, I think um, I have a lot to say, but uh, I'll limit it to I was. I thought they were going to get into my favorite topic, which is uh, this indiscriminate buying and selling that uh, Marco at J JP Morgan came up with due to vol targeting. And I think this is very detrimental uh, to life and the trends and trend followers. And I think a lot of the trend followers are creating this uh, drama and this chaos by... Uh, immediately throwing in orders because their vol is beyond a certain target and it creates more volatility. So I think this, uh, they didn't get into that as much, but uh, I think that all of this uh, indiscriminate buying and selling or price insensitive is uh, creating fake prices. And, um, you know, uh, are my orders, your orders, everyone's orders is impacting the clothes or the markets in general. I remember many years ago doing some research with a friend and he said he added in a little bit for slippage uh, when he, to his entry price uh, to penalize uh, uh, for the trying to add slippage and commissions in. And, but he said, I would not add uh, more than the high of the day, for instance. And I'm like, no, you've got to add in more than a high of the day. But it, that was the high. I can't buy above the high. I said, if you would have been buying, it may have been a, uh, a higher high. So... Uh, I think we can get fooled into thinking uh, that, uh, well, our orders don't really matter. What we're doing is not having an impact on the price. And, uh, oh, yeah, I think it, it might be for sure. Great stuff. Thanks for bringing that up, uh, Morris. Do you want to do more tweets? Do you want to jump to a couple of questions we have lined up? 
yeah, let's do some questions. Okay, cool. First question is from uh, Dane. Um, Dane has a question about uh, backtesting. Um, and he writes that uh, I've been trading for about six years, fairly profitable, but I would like to know the ideal look back period uh, or how far back should I test backtest a system. I'm looking to implement a new system in case my current system goes out of sync. My current system that I have has a three-year look back period or three-year backtesting. So I was a little bit confused when I read that, Dane, to be honest. I can understand the three-year look-back period, but the or three-year back-testing, I'm not sure. But I think we can probably help you in any event. So, Moritz, uh, let me start with you. If someone is trying to implement a new system, um, how long would you go back in time to um, to do a back-test? So first off, I think it's uh, the way the way I look at the systems. I think it's it would be impossible to have a three year look back and a three year back test because I require three years of data to have a three year look back. So that kind of like gets you started. You are now at T zero. The first trade may now happen. So if you have a three year look back, the back test must be longer than three years. But um, that aside, um, use all the data that you can get. I think we've said this before. You know, find a good data provider. Um, we've mentioned CSI on this podcast, uh, lots of futures data, uh, lots of history, reasonable prices, good service, um, and, and get, get that data and run the back test for as long as you can go back to the 1980s. If you want go back to the seventies, you know, use some of the grains, like the wheat contract goes down into, I think the end of the twenties or something like that. If you, if you buy that. So very interesting. And, um, so have all that data, and then there is really no answer as to what your optimal look back or holding period is going to be, because this is in the eye of the observer. This is really for you to come up with as a function of how much vol and how much risk do you want to have in your portfolio? How many markets do you trade? Uh, do you have a combination of multiple systems? You know, all of those type of things. And um, it may be that, you know, uh, you want to be on a kind of like three month look back or half year look back, or I don't know, 20 days look back. It, it just depends on what you like. Yeah. Anything to add, uh, Jerry? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think maybe he was confused on what we mean by look back and it's, uh, the, I agree with everything Moritz said as much data as possible back to the eighties is great. And, um, look back period is going to be fairly obvious when you sort of get into it um not too short term not too long term yeah and i would just add to that dane uh, you know don't try to look for stuff for the perfect look back period right it's always going to be different going forward um, maybe choose a a few different ones just to 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 spread your your dependence uh, uh a little bit but uh, appreciate the question uh next question is from neil um, and this must be for, for you guys. For equity trades, do you have a minimum amount of volume a stock must trade for you to be interested in it? That's for Jerry, I guess. He's the single the stock. Yeah. stock oh, trader. yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, you know, I, I think a million shares. It depends on your AUM and that sort of stuff. You know, eight, one million, two million shares is what I look at. You know, I don't want to get too... Illiquid. Uh, some of the most liquid stocks can get fairly illiquid uh, on 
big bad days. Uh, you know, I had a big huge winner in Target, and then a big huge loser in Dollar Tree recently. So those things can kind of got to be careful uh, with that. I think uh, from my point of view, it's equally as important as well to uh, make sure that uh, the stocks that are in your portfolio, uh, you can short easily as well. And so some stocks like, uh, let's say, I think uh, Tesla might be one that's really liquid, but sometimes it's been very difficult to short because, um, well, I'm not exactly sure. I look at the numbers and I say to myself, oh, it's really hard to short. I think it probably has something to do with there's a lot of people shorting it and it's hard to find the shares to borrow to go short. So I definitely want to be able to do the longs and the shorts, just like I do in the currencies and commodities and bonds. So uh, that, I think, is a pretty important. Stay away from stocks in your, uh, that you can't easily go short as well. Yeah. Good stuff. Hopefully that was helpful, Neil. Um, last question is from James. James has a couple of questions, actually. Jerry and Moritz often speak of multiple entries and exits. I can see that this is true initially. However, is it true that once a trend emerges in a particular instrument, such as uh, all look-back uh, systems uh, have been triggered, that all those systems now sit on the same trailing stop-loss? And therefore, you'll be taken out of the entire position in one trade once that specific stop limit has been uh, hit. So you may get in using multiple look-back periods. The question is, do you then use the same trailing stop, so to speak, or do you have different ones for each of the entries? No, I don't. I guess it's theoretically possible, oh, very, very unlikely for that stop to be the same. Could be close to each other. Um, but they do not by design have the same stop. There is not one universal exit um, across those entries. And I'd actually like it if the exits were dispersed and if they are dispersed and they can happen at different levels. Yes, I agree, but I have uh, noticed that uh, it cannot, they can't bunch up. You know, if you're using breakouts and or moving averages, uh, do you think it's definitely possible for the different entries to all happen on the same day. And so that is a situation where your, your uh, ATR stop loss could all be the same. Um, but you could uh, you know have your different breakouts and move an average entries and space them. But if you don't manipulate it kind of to where you're going to guarantee some spacing, which can uh, kind of be done systematically, I suppose, um, then even if you do, if all of your uh, systems enter on different days at different levels, then the exits can all bunch up. You know, the 100-day low can be the 150-day low, can be the 200-day low, can be the 300-day low, the 75-day low. They all bunch up. It can happen. Um, so, yeah, what do you do? I trade multiple markets, and uh, but it can it can definitely happen. That's probably one of the reasons I like to trade. Um, crude, hitting on unleaded, maybe they're all kind of correlated, highly correlated. Uh, I won't trade them all the same, you know, the full position, but um, that right there can kind of say, okay, I'm in three different markets, but they're kind of the same, but maybe I'll get some diversification on entries and exits in that way as well, and not just say, okay, if they're all going to be 90% correlated, I'll only trade crude, 
yeah, that probably will work okay, but you'll uh, add, maybe be able to add some diverse entry-exit diversification as well. But yeah, it, things can bunch up. I've seen that. Yeah. James goes on with a second question. He says, when we set up systems to test, should we always take the original data as is, or if we are volat volatility adjusting for position size, should we adjust all the underlying data and weight accordingly to set volatility? Uh, well, if I can just uh, butt in here, James, from my perspective, I mean, the data is the data. I mean, I know some managers, I think, do manipulate the data a little bit. Uh, I've heard that. Um, so I, I don't want to be categoric uh, here and saying that doesn't work. But from where I sit, at least, the data is the data. And then on top of that, you apply your rules. But you don't start fiddling around with the data first. Um, that's just my view. Yeah, I think uh, Quantica adjusts data based on volatility. But I agree. You know, the data is the data. Then you adjust your positions based on volatility. But uh, maybe adjusting the data for volatility as well is something that, oh, obviously those guys are smart, and I think that's I think they do it, so they've come up with a good idea probably. Yeah. Anything to add on this one, uh, Mort? So do you want to get stuck in the, the next question from James, the last one? I like clean, pure, raw data, period. Fair enough. Then let's hear your thoughts on this one. Uh, James writes, what are your thoughts on emerging managers in the hedge fund space, systematic or other strategies? Is it now becoming too hard to penetrate with fee pressure and cost of running a business? Or is indeed the space just becoming indexed? What a way to finish this week's show. Well, I think it's just, um, you know, there was a tweet uh, we didn't get to this week, but it was something like... Uh, you know, if you want to be successful, you need to be different. So I think that's the problem is that uh, you're not going to be different. If you're going to trend follow, there's established managers out there with billions under ass in assets under management that institutions and people are going to gravitate towards unless you do something very different. So uh, figure out a way to do things different. What about you, Moritz? You meet a lot well, of managers. I agree with what Jerry has just said. I, you know, I do see every once in a while there are some, you know, managers coming up with um, some really cool ideas in the systematic space. It's not always pure trend following. Uh, it may involve different things, but um, those emerging managers, um, they definitely deserve a look. There's, you know, lots of talent out there, lots of good ideas, and, um, you know, this... In our space, in our community of trading the markets and, um, you know, looking to generate long-term absolute returns, it never stops. There's always, you know, research that needs to be done and that is done by clever people out there and they will come up with new stuff that other people haven't looked at yet. And um, so you need to stay at top of your game and, and consider these people. Some of them, I think, are really fantastic. Um, I agree if you know, your idea is to build a business with a, um, you know, 200 day versus 50 day moving average trend following system on 40 futures markets, then maybe that ship has sailed. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, um, on one hand, we shouldn't discourage uh, new people from entering because uh, 
many things has been built in a garage uh, and suddenly it's the world's largest uh, company of some sort so never to never discourage new talent to come in but i also agree with with moritz i think that the bar has gone up i think if you're trying to if you're trying to promote a product that is really average in in the way it's designed and the way it performs and you want to charge uh, you know the standard fees and there's nothing unique about it i think it's uh probably close to impossible to really attract any attention nowadays so in that sense i think it has becoming uh, more difficult i also think you're right in 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 your question uh, james about are things just becoming indexed i mean i think there is definitely a risk that most things in 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 business in life etc cetera, etc cetera, are getting commoditized so i think we have to do things to continue to command attention uh, to command um, higher fees so but having said all of that i will say from where i sit the things that have been commoditized the people who are coming out with replicated products of some sort i think they're incredibly average and i can't believe a lot of people will want to pay for for those to be to be frank i think there is still so much more value to be had from going to an experienced manager where they have uh you know where you know their interest is aligned with what you do they have skin in the game they've done it for a long time i i think that that is that is still a better proposition than something that just is 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 average i mean who really wants to be average we i don't think that people have you know that that shouldn't be your aspiration in life uh, and certainly not with your investments either but it's hard um but you know i think there's still opportunities uh, out there for those who who really uh, can deliver you know real real returns real alpha those were the questions for this week let me just quickly run through the performance after th- sort of the first week of december now these numbers are as usual always as of thursday evening and i think it's fair to to expect that friday was a good day so even though these numbers might be a little bit on the downside, I think that it's not as bad when you look at uh, the numbers Friday night. But as of Thursday, the beta 50-day index was down 1.86 for December, still up 5% for the year. SOCGEN CT index uh, down 1.69 for December, uh, up 5.12 this year. SOCGEN trend down 0.244% for December, up 715 the SOCGEN short-term traders index was down 0.65% in December so far. Uh, up 2.76 and the bridge alternatives down 2.34 percent as of thursday up 7.03 percent so far this year what else anything else you want to bring up this sunday morning uh well let's don't forget i want to get back to meb's interview with clano yeah Clenau, and uh talk about that so it's got a lot of good stuff in there and uh I particularly enjoy, you know, um, number one, you know, reading about fundamental uh, non-trend followers and the overlap of their philosophies of how to take money out of the markets. That's fun. And then people who are trend followers but who don't uh, maybe pay attention to the CTA trend following orthodoxy, like I think uh, Clano. So that's fine, and it's fun, and we can get into it. We can get him as a guest, and we'll actually have some 
controversy to get into. Like well, you and I used to get into it, Niels. That was like our ratings had never been higher when we were duking it out about something. I don't even remember what it was. But, <laughs> so let's get our ratings up by having these controversial. <laughs> you know, yes. he's a friend and a yeah, and not a foe, but uh, you know, it's there's differences of opinion, and that's that's more fun. Okay, no, we should definitely get uh, Andreas on the show. That's fine, and uh, and maybe even for for 2020 coming up with some more uh, some more. Dif- we'll have to find something to disagree on first of <laughs> first of all, I guess. So uh, so we'll see about that. Speaking about ratings, we always want you to share the podcast with someone that uh, you think would be a great fit for uh, for this show. Uh, we appreciate uh, every time we see a review, of course, um, but. You know, helping us build the podcast uh, as we go into 2020 is, of course, something we would always be very grateful for. As well as your questions, uh, if you have some, uh, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. Maybe we can get a few really great ones uh, to finish the year. We've had lots of good ones during the year, so let's uh, have a s- strong finish as well. And um, I think that's it. So from Jerry Morris and me, thanks so much for spending part of your day with us. We are grateful for your support, and we can't wait to be back with you in a week's time. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review, and be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com, and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.